The Art of Poetry, Part One, by Quintus Horatius Flaccus, translated by Mason and Watt, read for LibriVox.org by Leni. Should a painter take upon him to join a horse's neck onto a human head, and to add plumage of diverse colors, limbs from every kind of animal, so that what in its upper parts was a fair woman, and in a foully hideous fish, would you, when admitted as a friend to a private view, be able to contain your laughter? Believe me, Pisos, very like that picture will a book be, wherein conceptions are imagined false as a sick man's dreams, wherein neither head nor foot can be referred to a single type. But painters and poets alike have always been allowed any license they choose. We know it, and we mutually give and take the privilege— but on condition that there are no matches made between wild and tame, no pairing of birds with serpents, or of lambs with tigers. Often to openings in the grand style that promise much are tacked on one or two brilliant patches to add a far-seen lustre, and when the grove and altar of Diana, the meandering of the water as it hurries through the pleasant meadows, the river Rhine, or the rainbow is described, but this was not the place for them. Perhaps you know how to paint a cypress, but what's the use if the man who has paid for his portrait is swimming away in despair after a shipwreck? It was a jar that was begun. Why, as the wheel runs, is the outcome a ewer? In fine, let it be what you please, provided it is one thing, natural. We poets, for the most part, father and young man worthy of your father, are the victims of our own ideals. I labor to be short, and become obscure. While I pursue smoothness, my work lacks vigor and spirits. The poet who aims at sublimity becomes bombastic, while he who is too cautious and too fearful of the storm crawls on the ground. The painter who desires to vary unnaturally a single subject puts a dolphin in the woods, a boar amid the waves. Thus the shunning of one fault, if it lacks skill, leads to another. The humblest craftsman about the Emilian school can copy fingernails and imitate flowing hair in bronze, yet miss success in his work at large because he cannot represent a whole. If I cared to write, I would not be he, any more than I would go through life with an ugly nose while my black eyes and black hair commanded admiration. You who write, take a theme suited to your strength, and ponder long what burden your shoulders will not bear in what they can. The man who chooses his subject with self-restraint, him neither eloquence nor clear arrangement will forsake. The virtue and the beauty of arrangement, or I am much mistaken, will prove to lie in this, to say at the very moment what at the very moment should be said, and to put off, and for the time leave out, much. He also who takes upon himself to promise a poem nice and cautious in the connecting of his words, should hold to one and reject another. Your style will have distinction if a skillful setting makes a well-known word new. If perchance it is needful by fresh signs to point to things before unknown, it will be your fortune to invent words which the setegi with their loin-clothes never heard, and the freedom will be allowed you if modestly assumed." Your fresh and newly made words, too, will pass current, 
if they come but sparingly drawn off from a Greek source. For what will the Romans grant to Sicilius and Plotus, and refuse to Virgil and Varius? For my part, if I can gain a word or two, why should the right be grudged me, when the language of Caro and of Ennius enriched their country's speech, and brought in new names for new things? It has been allowed, and will for ever be allowed, to utter coin that bears the stamp of present use. As the woods change their leaves each swiftly moving year, and the first fall, so the older generation of words dies out, and, like young men, the newly born are fresh and strong. Death claims us, and all that is ours. Whether it be that, received within the land, Natum protects fleets from the north wind, a kingly work, or a marsh long barren, fit only for the oar, feeds neighboring cities, and feels the weight of the plough, or if a stream has changed a course that harmed the crops, learning a better way. Yet human works will perish, far less will the respect and popularity of speech be lasting. Many words already dead will find a second birth, many will die that now are held in honor, if custom, in whose hands rests the power, the law, the rule, that governs speaking, so determine. It was Homer who showed in what measure the prowess of kings and leaders and stern wars could be described. In pairs of verses of an equal length, first sorrow, then the feeling of granted prayers was contained. But as to who invented and sent forth upon the world slight elegies, professors disagree, and the issue is still before the court. Archilochus was armed by his fury with the iambas of his own finding. Then comic sock and stately busking took up the foot, well suited as it was for dialogue, able to rise above the noise of the audience and born for action. The muse granted to the lyre to celebrate gods and their sons, the conquering boxer and the horse first in the race, the passions of youth and careless wine. But if I lack the power or the knowledge to keep to the accepted types and tones of poetic works, why am I hailed poet? Why do I, with false modesty, choose rather to be ignorant than to learn? A comic theme will not endure to be set forth in tragic verse, and Thyestes' banquet is outraged if it be told in the everyday strains that are almost worthy of the sock. Let each kind keep to its appointed and becoming place. Yet sometimes even comedy uplifts her voice, and angry creams declaims with swelling uterance, and often tragic characters bewail themselves in homely speech, as when Telephus and Peleus, beggars and exiles both, cast away their paint-pots and their words a foot and a half long, if the object of their plaint is to touch the heart of the spectator. It is not enough for poems to be beautiful, they must be pleasing, and draw the spirit of the beholder whithersoever they will. As faces that are human laugh with those who laugh, so they weep with those who weep. If you would have me weep, first you must grieve yourself, then your misfortunes will pain me, Telephus or Peleus. But if your words are ill-suited to your part, I shall doze or laugh. Sad words become a mournful character, threatening words and angry, sportive, a playful, grave, a stern. For nature first molds us within, according to every state of our fortunes. She makes us feel delight, or provokes us to wrath, or bows us to the earth beneath a weight of sorrow, and wrings our hearts. Tis only afterwards that she brings feeling to light 
by the interpretation of the tongue. If the words are out of tune with the fortunes of him who speaks them, the Romans, horse and foot, will raise a laugh. It will make all the difference whether a god or a hero is talking, an old man of ripe age, or one that is fiery, and still in the flower of his youth, the respected mistress of a household, or a careful nurse, a wandering merchant, or a tiller of green fields, Colchian or a Syrian, one that was reared in Argos or in Thebes. Follow tradition when you write, or invent consistent characters. If once more you should by chance present illustrious Achilles, let him be active, swift to wrath, implacable and fierce. Let him deny that laws were made for him, and claim all things for the sword. Let Medea be proud and unbending, Inno, tearful, Ixion, treacherous, Io, a wanderer, Orestes, gloomy. If you put upon the stage something not tried before, and have the courage to create a new character, let him be kept to the end just what he was when he first came on, and be consistent. Tis hard to endow commonplaces with the speaker's personality, and it would do better merely to divide the Iliad into acts than be first to produce unknown and untold incidents. The subject which is common property will be your personal possession if you do not remain in the cheap and easy round, and are not anxious, faithfully interpreting, to render word by word, nor in your imitation leap into a narrow place whence shame or the conditions of your work would forbid you to come forth. Nor will you begin, as once did a cyclic poet, of Priam's fortune will I sing and the famous war. What could this man of promises produce worthy of such mouthing? The mountains will be in labor, and the birth a miserable mouse. How far more rightly he in all whose undertakings there is judgment. Tell me muse of the hero, who, after the day of Troy's fall, beheld the manners and cities of many men. His plan is not to let his brilliance end in smoke, but from smoke to give light, that one by one he may call forth his striking wonders, Antiphates and Scylla, the Cyclops and Charybdis. Nor does he begin the story of Diomedes' return at the death of Meleager, nor the Trojan war at the double egg. Always he hastens to the issue, and hurries the hearer into the midst of events, as though they were known and what he cannot hope to make brilliant by his handling, he passes by. Moreover, he lies in such a fashion, and so mixes false with true, that the middle is not at variance with the beginning, nor the end with the middle. As for you, hear what I and the people with me look for, if you wish for applauding spectators who will wait for the curtain, and sit till the singer says, Now clap. You must take note of the habits of every age, and assign to changeable and ripe ears, their fitting character. The boy who has learned to answer, and sets a firm step on the ground, is eager to play with his fellows, and easily gathers and lays aside his anger, and changes from hour to hour. The beardless youth, his guardian at last removed, finds pleasure in horses and dogs and the grass of the sunny plain, walks to be moulded to wrongdoing, rude to his advisers, slow to secure his true interests, lavish of his money, enthusiastic, passionate, and swift to abandon what he loves. With changed pursuits, the age and spirit of the man seeks wealth and friendships, and is the slave of office. He fears to make the mistake which soon he may labor to undo. Many are the evils which surround an old man, either because he seeks, yet to his sorrow fears, 
to grasp and use what he has found, or because he manages all affairs fearfully and coldly, a procrastinator, with far-reaching hopes, inactive, eager for the days to come, cross-grained and querulous, one that praises the world as it went when he was a boy, and chides and criticizes younger men. Many pleasures the ears bring with them as they come, many as they go they take away. Lest you should give an old man's part to a young, or a man's part to a boy, know that we shall always dwell with pleasure on that which aptly fits each time of life. End of the Art of Poetry Part 1 This recording is in the public domain.